I took a with posture with my kids on cleaning. They'd have chores they'd have to do every week. So my kids will tell stories about toothbrushes and grout around yeah. the toilet and to varying degrees, it, it's been yeah. successful. Well, there's a story called Cinderella that was just like <laughs> yeah. that, so yeah. <laughs> Hey there, if you've joined the podcast today, my name is Chris Jarvis. I work with companies on employee giving and volunteering programs. And my name's Jake McIsaac. I spend a lot of time thinking about public safety and restorative justice. So we are having conversations here that we've been having for 20 years. Yeah, the only difference now is we press record and share it with you. Thanks for joining us. This week, Jake tells a story about being hit by one of the biggest hurricanes Nova Scotia has ever experienced, being asked to go save his uncle's life, and what he learned about his own selfishness in the process. <laughs> That's okay. So, trailer right, the music. Here we go. Here we go. There's an open uh, mic night, uh, one of the bars around here. I live in an area in Baltimore where there's tons of bars. So, from 11 till 2, it's like, Come on in, grab the mic and tell your jokes. So I'm trying to come no. up with I'm trying to come up with like five minutes. It's gonna take me fifty hours, but a tight five minutes. Tight five minutes. So karaoke is not enough abuse. You end up there's like this open mic phenomena that's happening yeah. there. It's it, it's new. I, I'm hoping actually to learn a little bit about performance by getting really beat up. Because the, the groups that I speak to are generally civilized and very polite, and you'd not, you'd not, nobody throws apple cores at a conference typically, you know. What's the signal that you've done well? Applause, laughs, engagement. How do you, how are you going to measure that, or will they give you feedback like directly? Low, yeah, yeah. I think it's low levels of heckling. That's where I'm starting with. I it, this oh is God. all about your highest level of contribution. I, okay. I don't know if you've ever heard that term, but mine is nothing. So I'm going to contribute nothing to these people's lives except give them five minutes of an excuse to drink a lot of beer while they're waiting for me to finish. That's the contribution I think I'm making. So, Well, let me tell you um, a story about the contribution of nothing. Okay. So... <laughs> That, that just that just felt that in my in my soul. So it's been a week here in Halifax. Uh, we had a hurricane last weekend, and folks are still cleaning up from Hurricane Fiona. Folks were talking about this as the storm of the century to hit Atlanta, Canada, and it was it was well, quite wait. an event. All the trees got knocked down in the last storm of the century. Oh wait, mm -hmm. it was this century, the early two thousands, wasn't it? Which yeah, yeah. One was that? One. I, I mean, there was ton. Uh, all the trees were knocked down. One huge park, Point Pleasant Park, basically treeless. And that was Sim similar, similar scale, lots okay. of, lots of trees, lots of damage, uh, significant power outages. But, uh, what, what made me think of this was a phone call I got from my dad. So we're all out of power. I'm out of power. I'm sleeping in the office. Like I've got a cot set up. I first oh, had damn. to work. I had to work on campus during the event. Uh -huh. So that was fun. Uh, no, because nothing stops students from partying, not even Hurricane not even. Fiona. So anyway, so I, I digress, but I'm sleeping on campus. I've got no power at home. That's okay. I could shower and sleep in my office. All right. that, all that's working fine. And I get a call from my dad who's out of power, but has a generator. And, um, he says, listen, um, your uncle, I'd like you to go check on your uncle, please. I'm like, all right, well, he's not, he's kind of between my house and, and where I work. And, uh, 
you know, my dad dispatches me there yeah. to say, check out, check on your uncle and uh, we can't reach him. How old is your uncle? Because I've never met him, I don't think. No, I, I don't think so. Um, he'd be about 80. He's my dad's oh my slightly gosh. older brother. Oh my gosh. Uh, and, and dad tells me that, uh, you know, he's, he's, uh, sh- he's kind of shut in with the power off. They can't reach him. So he's without communication and then drops the, oh, by the way, he's on oxygen and he can't leave the house and without power, he can't. He will be without his oxygen supply. So we need you to go and check on him, please. Oh, so I was like, oh, okay. That sounds like something I should, exactly like I should do. So so I go and find out that it's actually much worse than that. The the nights have been cold. Uh, It gets down to about six to eight degrees now or mid forties for, for you folks in the U S so it's, it's cold and he doesn't leave a chair He's kind of confined to one room. Yeah. And he's without oxygen, sitting in the dark, without uh, a regular supply of oxygen and these dwindling batteries. Gee, so we need wait, to. Okay, this is the setup of a disaster yeah, yeah. happening, right? It's, like. So immediately has to. And fortunately, that, you know, he's got a, a great neighborhood and uh, a friend lives up the street. Okay. So we start to build in this. Well, I'll check on him twice. I'll check on him in the morning and the evening. If you can check on him midday. I'll bring some battery packs. We'll try to try to survive this thing. And I will do runs throughout the day to pick up oxygen tanks and ferry them back and forth. So that's all going. It's exhausting, but we're yeah. getting through it. Getting yeah. through it. How Get many days? Uh, six. Six days. Okay. Six days. And um, my dad says about day five, listen, I, uh, I wonder if it's a bit of, uh, intrusive. Like I'm trying to think about what it would be like. And he's thinking about what it would be like for his brother to suddenly have these people coming and going multiple times a day. They're quite a proud family in that way that okay. would like to be able to do it on their own. Yeah. And so this is this. And, he, and, and is he ambulatory? Like he just no. get up and walk? No. no. Okay. So no. he's. Restricted to a chair. Okay. To, uh, cannot breathe. Okay. Without, without assistance. So this is what dad says to me. Get a load of this. I wonder how um, it must feel for him to be receiving our help. And I said, our? <laughs> because okay. I missed the point. I was like, wow, yeah. dad's got some empathy. He's like, how yeah, should no. we be handling that? You like, got dad. fixed it on a different part. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said this was a story about when you bring nothing to the table. And so what Rick brought to the table oh. was, I will send my son. My one and only son. No, that's not well, here. Well, no, well, no, because that other son, which is very similar to the story, my, my other brother, did nothing. Oh, so, man. Anyway, it's not about my family, but it is about finding the resources and dispatching resources. This is one about maybe... Rick was able to say, well, this is a resource I have. My dad, probably with his own mobility and being able to come and go, probably couldn't do much more. Right. But one thing he could do, and I don't have a relationship with my uncle like that. Right. Is tap his network. Oh, or- network. That was exactly Damn. what he did. Yeah. And it, there, it was a relational response to emergency and not a system one. Right. It really started to make a difference. So it's kind of a, a funny thing, except it really bothered me when he said we, like our. <laughs> Take a little too much credit for the... Uh... Yeah. But, I, you know, we have to ask, because your dad's going to be listening to this. He'll be mad about six minutes ago. 
Okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So hold on, Dad. Here we're coming back. Okay, Rick. Where was your son's call to you to say, "Hey, what about your brother? Should I look in on him?" Mm-hmm. Because that didn't happen, right? No. I well, I I didn't know before last week that my uncle was in this state. Oh, that's it. Okay, so that is a really interesting yeah. aspect to add because you were he reached out to you because he he also knew that you weren't up to date on. I wasn't up to date. I would have yeah. helped. And, I, and going forward, I will help because right. now I know it's different. Now you're involved, but I, yeah. I had no idea that that you was You had no idea what was going on. It took yeah. somebody else to invite you to the moment. You stepped up. Well, okay. So this is the circle back to the funny part. Okay. So I have this power block that's going to <laughs> keep his oxygen machine going overnight. Like a, a strip where you plug in. Yeah. It's a little bit more than that. The little okay. like cell phone battery booster this one oh, okay. should last one. Nice. somewhere between 16 and 18 hours or excuse oh. me yeah, yeah 16 and 18 hours so i bring this thing in i've never used it and i tell him this will last you through the night it's a fine i've read the back i've read the back of the box i've read a couple reviews online it good. should be good and yeah. so what he says to me is as i'm leaving okay i'm trusting your math on this one and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, you'll be fine. And then I got home. Uh, uh, and I was like, no. wait, did I do the math right? Oh, no. Will this actually last all night or oh, will no. this run out? Yeah. So uh, it lasted eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> so, Before I keep laughing in front no, of everybody. It was okay. It was okay. Thank you. Okay. But when yeah, I went in the morning. Was, nobody passed. When I went in the morning, we had a conversation about my math skills Oh no, Jacob. because, you know, uh, I didn't take into account all of the variables in this power drain situation <laughs> and it used a lot more than I, anyway, this is maybe a little bit more serious. Okay. It had an alarm though that started to count down. And so- Like in a movie when a bomb yeah, going to go off? Yeah, exactly. He knew oh, no. that, he, and he, I didn't tell him that I was coming in the morning. He thought I might show up around noon. So here's what happened is he saw this alarm counting down and he had four hours of oxygen left and didn't think anyone was coming in time. And we had a conversation about that was really enlightening to me was he, you know, said, uh, have you ever been within four hours of your life and you're watching it count down? And I'm like, Oh my gosh, never. Like it was, it, uh, yeah, that would anxiety be anxiety inducing. It was yeah. terrifying. I felt so bad about not just the math, but about that whole experience that he had. And right. we, we had an awesome conversation after that about right. what matters and, and uh, actually made some really good connections coming out of that. But just in that moment and what he was learning and what he was thinking about and the, and the kinds of um, things that were occupying his mind in what he thought were could be the last four hours right and you're watching drop by second so it was man it's been an eventful week gee whiz that yeah. is a but back to rick doing nothing that's the thing yeah <laughs> his highest level of contribution was you and maybe that's something maybe that's something as long as you're not going to count wrong in Someone yeah. dies because of it. That's a. And I wasn't being cavalier. I was doing. No, no, of course not. It was just a little mistake. Do you think you're going to be more connected to him going forward, or is this just sort of I a hope so. step? Yeah. You know? No, I hope so. It's uh, sadly for me, 
actually throughout this, I met his son, my cousin, who I'd never met before. Yeah. So it, it's it's already building connections that I didn't have. Yeah. It, so. You know, that phrase, how you meet people at the highest level of contribution, and the, the idea came because there was a nonprofit that we were working with, and one of the members of the, in the leadership said, you know what our problem is? We attract a lot of people to the organization, and we treat them all the same. Oh, great. You're new. Do this, do this, do this. And some of those folks are coming in having started other nonprofits. They're on boards. They're multimillionaires. They, not that wealth or power means that you are more valuable, but it may mean that in terms of your connections and what you can leverage and what you can leverage out of your own experience may in fact be different and probably is. And so the highest level contribution became for us, how do we understand where people are in their journey of volunteering? So if we thought about this with your uncle, your highest level of contribution was just not to show up and get to know him, but sort of like a basic, what do you need, right? Yeah, absolutely. And now you're sort of stage two, which is, okay, I've had an experience where I understand what it would be like to be in his situation. And now you're kind mm -hmm. of thinking more broadly and... Um, and like you said, uh, connecting to a broader network, even that he has. And I think I was kind of set, like after six days, if there's a rhythm that sets in, I'm kind of looking forward. Yeah. I'm getting, I'm getting up earlier on my way to work because I have to make an extra two stops. I have to stop and go through a drive-through oh, to get him a coffee, yeah. a different, yeah. I have to, and so my life starts to adjust. And then I was sitting there and the power came back on and he was so happy. He would be warm. Yeah. Things would come back. Yeah. And I was driving away going, well, I'm really happy the power's on, but have I lost my reason to go back? I haven't, I've been in touch since, right? but I, I haven't gone back. Right. And so I'm going to do that this week, but, and just to make sure that he knows that this wasn't just a, a sympathy or, or just for an emergency situation, that this is a, a relationship that I'm actually kind of interested in. And I, I learned a lot about my dad's family and that side of the family. That is so crazy that at this age, you're 40, I'm 50. Yeah. The, no, you're a little over 40. I'm a little over 50. And um, <laughs> 44. And I'll be 54. What's interesting to me, my, my dad passed a few years ago, and I am shocked at how much about him and his family. I don't know. Did you ever become consciously aware of how much you didn't know about oh, this ton. part of your family? And and did that make you ask questions about why? Why didn't you know? Or what would, could you know? Yeah. No, I, I asked. Uh, I wanted to take advantage. I had this real sense that time was the commodity that I wouldn't get back. Whether the power went, you know, came back on. But also I'm sitting there with an old man who holds a piece of my family history. And stories that he could fill in yeah. the gaps, st stories that I heard my dad say. So I just asked those questions because yeah. one of the things that I was doing while I was there is uh, I wanted to not just come in in a transactional way and say, well, here's your oxygen tanks. Let me set uh -huh. this up. Here's the power bank. But to actually sit because when I left, there's no TV. He had a battery operated radio that he could listen to to sort of break it up. But he said, I'm just left here with my thoughts and my memories. And so when he told me that, I thought, well, I should tap into that then. Mm -hmm. And so we just, I would ask him questions in the morning 
and ask him to think about, do you remember when your family moved from Antigonish to Halifax and how old you were and what the conditions were that caused the move? Do you remember anything around that? Well, I had heard my dad's version right. and I wanted to hear his. And right. so when I came back that night, he would tell me and I learned different pieces. It was very cool. My head is a little blown here because of the parallel between, you know, meeting people at the highest level of contribution. You go in, it's pretty low. You kind of have this experience. You sort of have this Sorrentine dilemma where you're you're aware of what you don't know, and now you're mm -hmm. able to see a value that this person has, and it it goes beyond the initial situation. So when I right. think about people who volunteer, we go to a homeless shelter and we're going because it was been organized and somebody asked me to go and I go. We tend to think of going to help those people with their problem with two pronouns. One is I'm going over there, and I'm going to help them with their problem. Two. I'm going to do this to them and to the problem or to the community. I want to make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is sort of a two posture. I'll do mm -hmm. it to you and you'll be grateful. Or I'm not going to do it to you. I'm going to do it for you because you mm -hmm. don't have the ability. But in a two or four posture, we become the value add from start to finish. There's no reciprocity. It's not a resilient approach to helping because in resilience, you're open to receive, even if the person from your estimation has nothing to contribute. So he's sitting there, he's yeah, 80, yeah. he's not going to go running with you, he's not going to look after your dogs, he's not going to return any favors, he's not going to come to your house to help you, nothing, right? Right. So you could look at it to, with a two or a four posture. I'm going to yeah. do this to you so you'll be safe. I'm going to do this for you because you can't. And, and you could have objectified him as a problem to be solved or a thing to be fixed or addressed. and then. It's sort of about yourself. And honestly, if he lived instead of died, that's mm -hmm. a good outcome. Who cares? Yeah. Right. But to go beyond it, the with posture is one where you stand side by side and you bear both the culpability right. for the situation, because we all live in a planet where we feed the system and the burden of bearing it together. And you meet mm -hmm. people at the highest level of contribution, which is not meaning it's the same as you, like I said a few minutes ago, we don't all have the resources, the same experiences, whatnot. So it's not equal contribution, right? It's equitable in that we create space to meet people at the highest level of contribution. And that is a hard concept to get your head around. I think when you hear it for the first time, because I remember my conversation with this person saying, you know, we meet people like at the same level of contribution, it is equal and we're losing lots of people because of it. They just stay for a few months and go somewhere else where they can make a better contribution. Is that a weird analogy to make? No, or not at all. Um, I think it, it hits at exactly why my dad was asking that question in the first place, because he didn't understand that it was more than one-sided. So he, his concern was that I hope my brother doesn't mind that we're all up in his business and right. coming in and yeah, when doing really this to him kind of thing. doing it too. And and so what you're talking about in that two with four or not is part of uh, the International Institute for Restorative Practices uh, social discipline window, and we can put that in the show notes. But what's interesting about that framework is it's it's built out on a couple on an x and y axis. Okay. Along um, one, it is support and the other is control or agency might be a better word. Right. Although, right? you know, high support, low support, high control, low control. 
Right. Could you walk us through that? Because that that gets us there, and then flip it to agency. Because I think you're yeah. right. I think that's a better word for the. I I, I I think they borrow liberally from other people's work, so I'll borrow for theirs. They use high support, high control, and that that's where they talk in the high support, high control. That is a with posture, and so if you're if you're engaging with people, it means that you are paying attention to the conditions of their participation. So you're very, very intentional about that. That's that high control. It's very right. thoughtful. Right. And the control gives them a proper scope, what's in, what's out. Yeah. You're giving them enough information. I mean, to allow for proper sense-making communication between you. You're yeah, not I mean, just I, I, over there in the side of the room. They're not over there. It's, it's participatory. It's yeah. how do you engage them? Um, now, I think where we have to be careful not to make it walk and talk is that it's mostly designed for uh, restorative justice processes that are less adversarial, but they're still structured around how do you hold people accountable? So in this example, they're trying to say, you have to set a condition, accountability is best done with. So in, when it's high control and high support, people are able to explore to your point, the culpability, both their own individual as well as examine who are we together. So that's the with. Instead yeah. of high control, low support, you're doing it to them. Right. Low support and low control, you're actually being negligent. You're not actually helping anybody. You might be serving mm -hmm. a system. Mm -hmm. You're you're absolutely transactional. This is mm -hmm. mostly about you. Yeah. It's not about if anything at all. If right? anything. Yeah. yeah. What, what I think is a helpful step over that, though, is in my work and with my colleagues, Jennifer Llewellyn being uh, one at the Restorative Lab here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, uh, Professor Llewellyn talks about uh, a relational approach to justice and really having to think about justice differently that, that actually is a seed to shape all the other relationships. So if justice looks like this, this is the definition. Mm -hmm that it is essential elements to justice or just relations would be respect, yeah, equal care and concern, and a space where your human dignity is recognized and assured. So if that is the definition of justice, then you know when something is wrong by it missing these marks. Okay. Can you say them one more time? Sure. Okay. Uh, the, the elements of a just relations or what we hope to strive for, if everything were perfect in the world, this is right. what justice would be. Okay. So it's uh, respect. Okay. Equal care and concern. So to your point about reciprocity. Okay. And so the the, mo the third uh, ingredient, if you were calling it that, would be uh, a space where your human dignity is recognized and assured. Not just recognized. Yeah. But we have to work toward getting it back to seeing you and making sure that we... We are regularly seeing you show up over who you are in, in full version of who you are. So what I like about that is if I, I can take that and now scale this to our conversation, and this is what I'm seeing with my uncle then. I'm coming in with a posture of, of respect. Actually, what gets me there is my dad asked me a question to go, and mm -hmm. I respect my dad. I'm connected in sort of family ties with my uncle. Mm -hmm. I know him. Right? Mm -hmm. So it's not a hard ask to go, but as soon as I see him in the state, I start to unpack that uh, human dignity. There's, there's certain outrageous pieces that I can't believe that a person is living this way yeah, or yeah. has to, or is suffering in this way, or that systems have failed. And if he didn't have these relationships, he would die. Like okay. it was so fragile for me that 
I recognized it. And then the ongoing work was to assure uh, his human dignity was maintained throughout the outage. Before we get to assured, the respect piece is interesting because you mentioned a couple of things. One was you began the journey with respect for your father and, of course, the, the right. respect that comes with family and whatnot. So right. the, the context sort of had baked in some familial right. structures and systems that triggered you're going to be respectful. But when you got there, you were faced with, and this is where we get this ranking dilemma, some realities that you didn't know. That's right. And to really get to the place where I think respect sticks and becomes respect in action is your ability to empathize. And you were able to empathize because of something in us called flexible social cognition, which is the ability to humanize or dehumanize the other person by imagining what it would be like to be them. So you imagine the mind of the other what would it be like for you? I, you didn't go through a list of bullets or anything like that. It happens sort of no, instantaneously. The heuristics are there, yeah. but there's one other ingredient. I know. And before we go into assurance and the other piece, I I want to just ask, because we could posit that a family member would go and be mostly focused on the inconvenience of this. Mm-hmm. And why don't they should be in a home? Oh my God. Why am I even right. doing this? This is right. a pain, right? Or they could go and think, I am a great helper. This is all about me. And yeah. the, the person becomes almost a vehicle to demonstrate my helpingness. I, I think we we see this uh, in performative allyship where the, yeah. the, the person becomes an occasion for me. I think we can judge other people and their motives pretty easily. I don't care about that. But how do I know that I'm actually finding that first step of respect by being able to empathize as opposed to objectifying them? or making it all about myself. That that feels tricky. So I, I think there's a relational answer, um, at least in this example that I, I will give you. Okay. But I think uh, the callback would be in season one, we did the Power of the Helper episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. And might be a good one for folks to catch up because we go okay. in deep on some of the motivations. So in this one, the one ingredient that I left out that I will say, and then I'll answer the question, was equal care and concern right respect assured respect equal care and concern and where your human dignity is recognized and and assured okay the equal care and concern came when my uncle did exactly what you're saying he started to say well gosh you're you're coming a lot i hope it's not a burden yeah it's a very maritime thing to do too right yeah so so you know, I, I really appreciate this. So he's he's actually in his way showing concern and care that I'm not being put out right. by doing this. Right. That care and concern actually was um, quite moving, more moving than just the words "thank you," which he said after the power came on. I really appreciate you doing this and having been there. But throughout the six days, he was regularly checking in that I was doing okay, and that was. In that relationship, that was where I could see I'm getting something too. I'm actually being cared for in his way. By just asking that question, your days are longer. I hope you're not late for work. Uh, Where he's showing interest and concern for me in the things that he's recognizing are different in my day now. And that, I think, seeds the relationship. So to your point, you go to the soup kitchen you're going just to help out, or maybe you're going, you start to build connections and meet people. And then you start to care about each other. And then you care about the things that are hurting or helping uh, the people that you care about. 
And, and I think that's sort of the space that I'm now in. I'm really interested in saying, well, gosh, I hope we can make a plan that his situation gets better so that he's not as vulnerable next time. Right. But how, but really asking him to engage in that with lots of okay. agency. That is interesting. That's a really good explanation of those uh, three pieces. And when we meet people at the highest level of contribution, we use that phrase like, can we create space where people can show up like Jake in a moment like this? And can we meet him at his highest, highest level of contribution as a volunteer helping others? And this journey usually yeah. begins with a two or four mindset. Right. I think we bring a bit of a childhood mentality to it. Like parents help us by doing things to us, strap us into a seat, put, make us wear our seatbelts, make us do this. They do things to us. There's not a ton of agency when you're young. Mm -hmm. uh, they do things for it or the way I was raised, the way you were raised. I think mm -hmm. I have seen parents take a much more with posture at a young age. It's very cool, but they tend to be older parents, not young like me at 22, just trying to survive. Right. But I do know that I took a with posture with my kids on cleaning and we all started when mm -hmm. they were about eight or nine, they'd, they'd have chores they'd have to do every week, several days a week, because there's mm -hmm. no way I was going to clean the house for these folks, mm -hmm. <laughs> my family for the rest of their lives. So my kids will tell stories about toothbrushes and grout around yeah. the toilet and to varying degrees, it, it's been yeah. successful. Well, there's a story called Cinderella that was just like that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But in, in volunteering, creating space for people to be met at the highest level of contribution means that we don't expect much at the very beginning, but we create space where people can ask these kinds of questions and take a more respectful posture, begin to practice humanizing the other, which is yeah. a weird thing to say, but our defaults are to dehumanize certain groups out of hand. Um, and there's crazy research around that from Dr. Lasana Harris. I'll put that in the notes as well. And then uh, creating space where people can show up right. with dignity and not only be told we see you as a person and we respect that, but then allow them to play that out with mm -hmm. us mm -hmm. as a peer, not equal in terms of what everybody's bringing, but equitable in that we're creating space for everybody to bring something at their highest level contribution. And here's the trick. We use that phrase with volunteers all the time, but we mean it for the people that we're working with as well, or that we're interacting with. And we say working with, because we're working mm -hmm. with them, not the people we're helping or the people we're doing something for or to. And so that creates an interesting dynamic. And maybe we can explore that on our next call is because you and I have, have uh, not knowing all of these well thought out and, and, and uh, interesting frameworks that we now know mm -hmm. undergirded the early work. But I think we've got some interesting stories we could tell about people where we respected, we created the space where they could come and take a with posture and then equal care and concern, equal care and concern, people who get to show care and concern for each other. Right. Anyways, next Next week, can we talk a little bit about when the church that you and I were at got robbed after an <laughs> oil spill and then the... Yes, because it'll allow us to pick up on this stuff in a different context, but I think I know exactly where you're going. All right. That this is part cool. one. Interesting to start with your dad and your uncle and your own journey. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to reflect a little bit on these three principles and how we see them playing out when we meet. Everyone at their highest level of contribution because everybody is weirdly a helper 
in this reciprocity and this mm-hmm. uh, resilient approach to community investment. Yeah, I, I think that that is it. The the helper posture. So the only thing I would say in in restorative work that we kind of do to go back to your your toothbrush and grout story <laughs> is in, okay. in the work we do. If we talk about modeling and facilitating, yeah. And so that with posture is deeply connected to the role that you're playing in that action. So as mm-hmm. you're bringing people along, you're not just dispatching them to go check on your uncle. Now I'm being a little bit mean to, to Rick, but in the story that you're saying is yeah. you're teaching folks how to do it, but not in an instructional way, uh, but modeling it. And there's something to that when people get to sit alongside of you mm-hmm. to make their own mistakes, when you mm-hmm. make it safe to fail, mm-hmm. uh, when you're right there and sort of mm-hmm. direct observation and can give coaching and say, now try this, watch this. There's a relational component to modeling and facilitating that allows people to learn it's it's more aligned with good adult pedagogy and and creating safe learning environments for people to say this is a space where i can actually allow my brain to pick up something new versus god there's a lot of pressure to get this right 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 and so i i I mean i think to let yourself off the hook a little bit it's a a helpful um posture uh that comes with the with yeah, and the, and that's why I think I like transformative uh, learning theory because one of the foundational pieces are that teachers and students learn together differently, mm-hmm. right? And in an immersive or experiential learning process where both go in interested to learn from the other, the teaching experience can be transformative as opposed to a transactional or communicative learning experience where I'm just telling you what you need and then you take it from here but i don't actually learn anything i'm just giving it to you which is that old charitable model i have you need i'll give it to you but this reciprocity and and both learning in an interesting way is it sounds like such a simple switch but when you're doing the work it plays out quite a bit differently and hopefully the story next week will give it a good example of that okay this has been fun Okay, I'll see you next week. Sounds good, buddy. Bye. This has been a Podstarter production. production.